0: We are once again in Acts chapter 2. I'll read the 39th verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for this day. We're thankful for the opportunity to come into your house as your house to worship you and to hear your word. We pray now that you will bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word, that you will send your spirit to lead us into all truths and to comfort our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I am thankful for the baptism that we had today. As I was thinking through this particular section of verse 39, um, I was hoping that there was going to be a baptism. And as I started my studies this week, there wasn't one on the horizon. And then uh, Caleb sent me an email and uh, we had one. So it's it's great. Uh, As I stated a couple weeks ago, um, this is one of our core distinctives as Reformed Presbyterians. Along with the five solas, this view of God's covenant extending to our children was at the heart of the Reformation. Now if you think I'm overstating that a little, um, I ran across the theologian this past week who after his review of the 16th century uh, Reformation leaders wrote this, "...the baptism of infants..." demonstrated very powerfully that our salvation rests not on any knowledge or work or experience or decision of our own, but entirely on the grace of God. This is the essence of the Reformed faith. Not on any knowledge or work or experience, or decision of our own, but entirely on the grace of God. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at Abraham. Paul tells us through the Spirit that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness that the Gospel was preached to Abraham and that he embraced it by faith. Abraham trusted the Lord. He trusted God's Word. He believed. He didn't know how God was going to fulfill the promises, but he knew that he would against all hope. Paul tells us that when we, the heathen or the Gentiles, embrace the gospel by faith, that we, like our father Abraham, are justified. That our faith is counted to us as righteousness, and that this is included in the ancient promise to Abraham and to his seed. Last week, we looked at the promise that is listed here in Acts 2.39. And we saw it means a couple of different things, or a number of different things. That it is the promise of the Messiah, first presented in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The promise that evil and the evil enemy would be defeated by the one, the Messiah, that would come and triumph over the world, the flesh, and the devil. We saw that the promise was to Abraham that he would have many descendants, that they would be like the stars in the heaven, that they would be like the sands on the seashore. And Abraham believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. We saw that the promise was extended from God to Abraham and to his children. We read from Genesis 17 earlier that the promise includes the blessing to the future generations and that they themselves would be a blessing. Genesis 26. We saw that the promise included that God would dwell with His people. We saw that there was a promise of a perpetual kingship to David that was stated earlier to Judah that the scepter would not depart from his house. The ultimate expression of the promise, we saw that the Holy Spirit was given to indwell all believers. We see that promise in Ezekiel 36 and other passages, even those I read this morning during the baptism. Abraham believed the promise. Maybe we could roll it all into just a couple verses out of Ezekiel 37, saying, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set My sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be My people." And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary should be in the midst of them forevermore. As I mentioned previously, we come to these passages with a bit of knowledge and a bit of experience. And I think sometimes the impact of these passages has worn off. It doesn't hit us like it should. As we think about this verse, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, for the promise is unto you and to your children. Who is Peter speaking to? Do you remember? He is speaking to the Jews. And just a few moments before this phrase, he tells them what? You men of Israel, hear my words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, By miracles and wonders and signs which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by your wicked hands have crucified and slain. Jesus, whom you have crucified, is both Lord and Christ. Do you see that? Peter is talking to a group of people who are responsible for crucifying the Messiah. And Peter extends to them the promises of God and tells them to repent and to believe and to be baptized for their remission of sins that their sins would be washed away arguably they participated in the greatest crime and sin in human history they crucified God's son It is one thing for God to extend forgiveness to His people when they were disobeying Him, when they were not following His ways. You remember our study back in Ezra and Nehemiah. We didn't get to Nehemiah. Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah. These are people who not only disobeyed the Lord, but they sacrificed their children to false gods. And the Lord of hosts extended mercy and grace to them. He reminded them over and over of the promises to them and to their children. And here we have Peter extending that same type of mercy and grace through the Spirit telling them, You are guilty of crucifying the Son of God. And yet, if you repent, and you believe, and you are baptized, your sins, your sin, will be forgiven. Because this is the promise that God has made to you and to your children. In the Catechism, we read of what it is like to live in the covenant and to have God's blessing upon you. And it says that those benefits are assurance of God's love. But that promise assures you that you have been adopted. You have been called out. You have been set apart as God's children. That promise communicates to you peace of conscience. That your sins are forgiven. That your guilt is gone. That God remembers it no more. That promise is of joy in the Holy Ghost. The promise includes the increase of grace. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will bless your children. Your children will be a blessing to all nations. You Will keep my covenant and perseverance therein to the end. End of what? The end of your life? Yes, but also to the end. That your seed after you would be faithful, and that their children would be faithful, and that their children would be faithful. As I said, I think this is a defining theology in the Reformed faith. And I wonder do we just hold it as head knowledge? Or do we walk it out by faith? It may seem a little odd to you today that we read from Matthew 18 earlier. Matthew 18, when you say that, people automatically begin to think of, oh, if you you have an issue with your brother, you should go to your brother, and if that doesn't work, then you bring in a couple more people, and if that doesn't work, then you bring it to the church, and so on and so forth, right? And that's true. It's in Matthew 18. But did you catch what we read this morning? This passage starts out and says, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now what kind of question is this? When you are looking in the face of the Son of God and you ask Him who the greatest is in the kingdom of heaven, are you not looking at Him? You see, the disciples had heard Him say that He was going to die, right? And we know from other passages that the disciples were jockeying for position. Who was going to take Jesus' spot when He left? Who was going to ascend to that position? And Jesus gives them a very Jesus-like answer, doesn't He? He doesn't say, it's silly, it's me. What does He do? And Jesus called a little child. And He set him in the midst of them. And catch what He says here. Verily I say unto you, except you, you adults that are standing around asking the questions, except you be converted And become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So in response to who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells them, look, unless you are converted and become like a little child, you can't even get into the kingdom. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. Remember, we have other passages that talk about the disciples trying to keep the kids away from Jesus. No, you can't get near him. He has important things to do. You children need to leave him alone. And then there's this warning, and we should take it to heart. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, and in case there was any doubt here, one of these little ones which believe in me, and the term "their little ones, can be translated as infant. I'm sorry, it's little children up above can be translated as infants. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he was drowned in the depths of the sea. That's pretty strong language. as we articulate covenant theology, as we argue covenant baptism and covenant communion, we do so in a culture that stands this passage on its head. And we tell the little children unless they believe like us, we won't let them into the kingdom. My hope this morning is that's not the way we are. As we continue on in Matthew 18, there is a Interesting story towards the end. You may be familiar with it, but I'm going to read it because it has an impact that is not to be missed. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Sounds about right, doesn't it? This is right up there with who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. My brother is sinning against me and he asks me to forgive him. And I have forgiven him. And he sins again. And I forgive him. And he sins again. And I forgive him. What Peter wants to know is, when can I nail him? When do I no longer have to extend that forgiveness? He says, till seven times. And Jesus says to him, I say not unto you until seven times, but until seventy times seven. But you who are good at math, that's, that's a big number. And then Peter tells him the story. He says, therefore is the kingdom of heaven, which is the term he used earlier when he was talking about the little children. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants, in which he had begun and when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. It's more than he could ever pay off in a lifetime. But for as much as he had not to pay, he had no way to pay this. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and that all and all that he had, so payment could be made. The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, "Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all." Did he have the ability to do that? No, he didn't. But that was his heart's desire. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave the debt. And how does the servant respond? That same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay thee all. Sound familiar? And he would not. But went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that, he called him and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. Should not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses." Did you hear that last line? So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Most of us certainly hope that that verse is not true. Every week before the sermon, we say the Lord's Prayer. Most of us have it memorized. And we say the words every week. And there is a line that echoes this passage in Matthew 18. It says, do you know the line? And forgive us our debts... As what? As we forgive our debtors. Again, we certainly hope that that is not true. As we are raising these covenant children, it is important that we see them correctly. That we see who they are. You know, we can go into all the kind of classic homeschool verses. We can go over to Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he should go. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right? Do you know the context of that proverb? Talking about the rich and the poor. And the very next line says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. We are to train up a child in the ways of debts and what that looks like, both from a financial standpoint and as we see over here in the New Testament, as what those debts may look like in terms of forgiveness. You see that? So the question becomes what are we teaching? Our children diligently. How are we to train them up? What does it mean to be born into and grow up in the covenant? Are we harsh with our children like the wicked servant in Matthew 18? having had great and many sins forgiven, do we then choke our little ones when they offend us? I know it's rough when they embarrass you in public. Right? Right? And what does our conduct often look like before the face of our Father? Or do we teach them the goodness of God and His mercy and His grace. Now, I don't want you to hear me say that we should not have high standards for our children. God holds pretty high standards for us. Amen? Have you read the Ten Commandments? But it's how does God respond to us when we fail? He extends the promises to those who murdered His Son. From Genesis to Revelation, God promises not only to be your God, but the God of your children. Just as He calls us to have faith that He will fulfill the promises to us, so He calls us to have faith that He will fulfill His promises to our children. And it is our job to communicate that to them. when you get them by the cheeks and you look them in the eye and you say, you are God's child and He loves you with an everlasting love. You know what everlasting means? It means, right, never ending. It means it lasts forever. When God's children sacrifice their children to false gods, He still loved them. When his people murdered his son, he still loved them. Is that how we interact with our kids? Is that how we interact with each other? That's a tall order. Who is sufficient for such things? The way we view our covenant children affects the way we raise them. And it affects the way they see themselves. Do we have a correct view of children? Probably. Do we live it in front of them by faith? Only you can answer that. Your kids could probably answer it. Do they see the Gospel in you? Do you extend that kind of grace to them? And I know it is hard. I know it is hard to see the children this way sometimes when you're looking through the mountain of laundry and dishes and bills and life's But maybe, just maybe, that's when it's most important. When you're grumpy and you're tired, and that child has gotten on that nerve again. That's when we live out our theology. If you would, turn back with me to Isaiah 66. Let's start. Oh boy, let's see. Where do we want to start? Let's start in verse 10. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All ye that love her, rejoice for joy with her. All ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breast of her consolation, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. But thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river." This is when... the. Israelites are misbehaving. They're about to be carried off into Babylon, right? I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall they suck. Ye shall be borne upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. God takes the picture of a mother who is comforting her child at her breast. And He says, this is the way that I will comfort and console and feed and nourish and assure my child of my love. This is the picture of what it means to raise children or what it looks like to raise children. We are running out of time here. I will skip over the rest of this. I just want to encourage you to remember The gospel is the most important thing in your life. Jesus has called you to preach the gospel to every creature. You are to love God and you are to love your neighbor. You know those little short neighbors in your house? Them too. Brothers and sisters, let our theology work its way out into our hands and our feet in the way that we care for our children. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this time in your word. We pray that you will bless it, that you will um, make it effectual in our lives. Lord, let us see ourselves in the text if we have fallen short, let us repent, let us fall upon your mercy and your grace, knowing that you hear us when we confess our sins and knowing that you forgive our sins. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.